this is not a president, when you actually look at his record, who makes arbitrary and capricious decisions. He is a president that challenges conventional wisdom. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. You're listening to the second episode of our 2020 presidential election series. In the series, POFA will cover the progressive as well as the Biden and Trump administrations' approach to foreign policy. We will also examine the role of technology in election interference and the importance of polling Americans on foreign policy issues. In this episode, we are discussing the Trump administration foreign policy strategy as well as how foreign policy might differ between a Trump second term versus a Biden administration. We will examine President Trump's top foreign policy priorities, including the U.S.-China and U.S.-Russia relationship, the U.S.'s approach to the Middle East, as well as the U.S.'s commitment to NATO. Joining us today to discuss this is Dr. James Carafano. As a reminder for the election series, while POFA hosts will be following up on questions, POFA hosts are not meant to overtly debate the positions of our guests. Rather, we will be leaving that critical thinking to you, the listener. At the conclusion of the election series, POFA hosts will be casually discussing their personal thoughts on the series as a whole. James Carfano is the Vice President of the Heritage Foundation's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy. He's an accomplished historian and teacher, as well as a prolific writer and researcher. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dr. Carafano, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's good to be with you. To start us off, could you tell us what the guiding foreign policy strategy for the Trump administration is? Sure. And and I always like to preface, not just for the Trump administration, but when you talk about assessing any administration from the, from the standpoint of, of being a professional and, and looking at how they practice foreign policy and statecraft, that there are, there are two elements to strategic leadership in a statecraft. There's rhetoric and there's action. And what you really have to do is to look at both, put both in context, and then both put both in the context of each other to really understand the effectiveness uh, and what uh, what a country is trying to do with the elements of national power that they're they're trying to apply. One of the most significant challenges with with Trump, of course, is, is this huge social media microphone that he has, and 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 of course, incredibly divisive and um, and uh, adversarial press in the United States, and, and and very controversial worldwide. And there's a tendency to overly fixate on rhetoric and to actually not pay attention to what the president actually does. And I think that sometimes that creates a very unbalanced view of American policy and statecraft. And the one thing that we've always tried to do is to look at both. And in many cases, to me, it's often most productive to look at what the administration actually does and then try to put in the rhetoric in context rather than the other way around. So um, as you guys may or may not know, I was actually on the presidential transition team uh, and I ran the State Department and the Homeland Security Department. It's, a, it's not actually part of the campaign. It's a nonprofit, uh, not nonpartisan uh, activity. Um, and uh, I, I have to admit that I think with many other people, I couldn't have necessarily told you exactly what the guiding strategy or foreign policy was listening to what the president said on the campaign trail. As a matter of fact, that's actually not unusual. Oftentimes, just listening to presidential rhetoric or, or to campaign rhetoric actually doesn't tell you much about what policies are actually going to be done. Um, and I, I think I, I mean, I think I understood that some from talking to people and, and everything else. But 
I must say, I think what's really interesting and really important to understand what the strategy actually is, is to look at the national security strategy that they published in 2017. Now, these are documents that are required by law. Um, in recent you know, presidencies, every president has done one. Most of them really don't amount to much because they're just kind of an expression of what the administration's already doing or, or they're aspirational. What was unique about the Trump national security strategy was the president had never put in one place in a very concrete, understandable way what his strategy actually was. And you had really two virtual outsiders come in, the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, and the Deputy National Security Advisor, Natalie Shadlow, both very good friends who I've known a very long time. And, and their approach, then uh, they're classic strategists. I mean, they are people steeped in the art of strategy and, and the history and the study of strategy. And their purpose was to really get into the president's head and understand what he meant in terms of ends, ways, and means, the three elements of strategy, the goals that you're seeking, how you're going to do that, what instruments and resources you're going to use to do that with. And, and they produced a document which I think captured um, the president's thinking. And ironically, unlike most strategies, it's actually become kind of the guiding document and again, unlike most strategies, this administration has actually, actually consistently followed um, what they said they were going to do in the strategy. And, and fundamentally, it's about great power competition. Uh, I think this administration kind of deserves credit for really being the first modern president uh, after the Cold War to really capture the strategic era that we've emerged in, um, the notion that our, our core strategic interests, the United States being a uh, a global power with global interests and global responsibilities in order to operationalize those globally, the key parts that, that connect the world together really need to be relatively peaceful and stable. And those are Western Europe, uh, the greater Middle East and the Indo-Pacific. The strategy really is focused on the stability of those three. And it really is focused on countering what the administration saw as the chief destabilizing threats, which were Iran, North Korea, Russia, and China. And I think what's interesting about that bad guy list is, you know, that's actually the same bad guy list that Obama and Bush had. Uh, and it's remarkable. It was really the first time since the end of the Cold War that we've had a succession of presidents uh, really articulate the same threat perception. Now, of course, they each had different ways of dealing with it, and, and they all, each had other things on their list. I mean, Bush fixated about Saddam Hussein. Obama was, you know, Put a lot of effort into climate change. Bush, uh, Trump, uh, put a lot of emphasis on, on border security, and immigration, but but the core list was the same. And really, what you have uh, in uh, uh, the national security strategy is uh, a strategy to deal with the era of great power competition. And I and I think if if the the Trump team was going to describe that, they would say, look, we're kind of halfway between an Obama. And a Bush, they would say the problem with the Obama administration is whatever, whatever with the Bush administration is whatever Bush thought his foreign policy was going to be. When he came into office after 9/11, the United States was horrified. How could how could this happen on American soil with the world's superpower? We should use our power to make America safe. And that uh, if anything, the, the response to 9/11 was over muscular, uh, over ambitious, and the United States kind of created as many problems as it solved which is a critique I think the Obama administration would share. 
but then they would argue the problem with the Obama administration is essentially they try to do the polar opposite. Rather than confront all the challenges in the world, they really sought to accommodate competitors and disengage from challenges. And I think the Trump administration argues that we're going to be the guys in the middle. We're not going to try to make the world safe for democracy. We're not going to do nation building every year. We're not going to run around and, and fight wars. We're not going to solve every problem on the planet. We're not going to be in the world's policemen. But we're also not going to flinch from defending and protecting our core vital interests. And so we're going to be a, the prudent guy in the middle that uses American power to protect American interests. Um, and uh, and I think they've, they've really tried to, to operationalize that strategy over the last four years. So you talked a little bit about having to separate you know, rhetoric versus what the actual actions are. And going off of that a little bit, I know that it's often suggested that there's a disconnect between President Trump's personal worldview and policy recommendations with, you know, the worldview and policy recommendations of his administration at large. I'm wondering, do you know, do you think this is the case? And also, if it is, does that hamper foreign policy decision making? Um, Well, it's not the case. I mean, the president is very much the decider in chief, but but we ought to put that in context. One of the things that's actually been a hallmark of his administration and, and a hallmark of reshaping American statecraft for an era of great power competition is to really challenge longstanding assumptions. Uh, probably the most famous, famously of those is kind of the Middle East, where you know the conventional wisdom was nothing can happen in the Middle East unless uh, there's a deal between Palestine and the Israelis. Uh, and the only way there can be a deal between the Palestines and the Israelis is if the United States act, acts like a completely neutral arbitrator between the two. Um, the president challenged that assumption from, from the beginning. Uh, and uh, it, one of, it's one of the things that actually enabled him to me to, to be very proactive um, in terms of policy in the regions. And there are, there are many times where the president had specific instincts um, and the team came back to him and said, no, you shouldn't do that. And in, in some cases, like we saw in, in the Middle East, whether it was uh, moving the embassy to Jerusalem or recognizing the Golan Heights or putting a peace deal on the table, the president said, no, I, I don't think your assumptions are correct. I'm going to do this. But there are many other occasions where they came back to the president and they said, we should not do that or we should do that differently. And the president said, OK, you guys have convinced me we'll do that. So uh, Syria is one of them. Uh, the president thought once ISIS was was defeated, we ought to immediately withdraw from Syria. Uh, they convinced him that, that we shouldn't. We still have troops there. Uh, Afghanistan's another one. People can people went to the president and said, we cannot draw down in Afghanistan until we really are sure that the Afghans can defend themselves. president accepted that. He did that. The, the most famous example of this is, or maybe not the most famous, but the most interesting. And I like, and I believe this story is true because I heard it from two independent sources that were actually in the room when this conversation occurred. Um, when the president decided we were going to pull out of the intermediate range nuclear forces treaty, um, he said, look, the Russians are cheating. Uh, this, this treaty is actually holding us back from doing the stuff we need to do against China. We're going to pull out. And he had a meeting with uh, Angela Merkel, the uh, head of Germany, and said, we're going to pull out of the INF. And she said, Mr. President, let me let me explain you something. She went kind of the whole history of the INF treaty and how to Europeans, the INF treaty really represented a step back from nuclear brink and and, and the confrontation it brought stability to Western Europe. It's, it's you know, become almost mythical in, in, in how people have seen it. 
And she goes, people don't understand um, why, why you need to walk away from this. Now, we, I, I, believe, I agree with you. The Russians have treated, and we, we cannot stand for this. Um, and I understand that, that, that you need to abrogate this treaty. I get that. But, but we European lead, leaders need time to, to get where you are and back your decision. And the president looked at her and said, okay, how much time do you need? And, and, and she was, according to reports, kind of taken aback, like, what? You're actually listening to me and taking my advice? And she goes, well, we need six months. And the president said, great. Okay, you have six months. So um, this is not a president, when you actually look at his record, who makes arbitrary and capricious decisions. He is a president that challenges conventional wisdom. He does listen to lots of people. Uh, and in the end, he makes up his mind. But I, I think in my assessment, there, there's a consistency there. Um, I don't ever see an example where he's compromised vital interests or where he has made decisions that uh, created excessive risk for the U.S. Dr. Carafano, I want to start diving a little bit more into, into what you think are, are these administrations during, during President Trump's first terms, um, top foreign policy successes and top foreign policy failures, in your opinion, in the context of this um, reshifting towards great power competition. So what uh, would you say has been uh, the greatest success of the Trump administration in terms of foreign policy thus far? Well, I think one clearly is the greater Middle East, where I think by everyone's account, uh, you could argue when the president came into office, Iran was more threatening and destabilizing than ever. Um, ISIS was absolutely on the march everywhere. Uh, countries were at each other's throats in the Arab countries. Um, Israel felt very alone and marginalized. Um, the president has reverse course on, on all of that. Um, today, Iran is, is very much restrained. Its economy is in poor shape. Uh, its surrogates are all under pressure everywhere. Uh, has very little flexibility, very little means to, to lash out at others. Um, the Arab countries are coming closer together. Uh, they are normalizing relations with Israel. Um, ISIS has been, the, the caliphate's been destroyed. Um, I, you know, countries are not only standing up and normalizing relations with Israel because they see that necessary to push back on Iran. They also see a much diminished threat from Islamists in the region, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, other Al Qaeda, uh, ISIS, that they can they can make these bold moves without, in a sense, you know, bringing the the extremists down upon them. So the Middle East is quite frankly much more stable than it was four years ago, and there's a real potential here to have something that we haven't had in 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 since the Ottoman Empire, which is real efforts of the Arab states and Israel to come together, provide collective security, to have real true economic integration, though provide increased prosperity, significantly grow jobs, probably improve governance. Um, I, I think that's a, a remarkable achievement. I, I think second to that is uh, look at uh, the Indo-Pacific. I mean, I think one of the most you know, common criticisms of the president is doesn't value allies, doesn't work with allies. I mean, I think the, the practical perspective is uh, the opposite. And, and probably the best example of that is the Indo-Pacific, where the president has achieved a remarkable bit of unity between the, the really significant powers in the region uh, and coming together to deal with China. So Australia, Japan, 
India, there's remarkable alignment there. I mean, if you look at um, Australia, for example, Australia's almost gone 180 degrees on its attitude towards China and in, in valuing its relationship with the United States. U.S.-Japan, never closer. The U.S.-Indian relationship is absolutely, the quality of the relationship is now completely unprecedented. So the key strategic relationships in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific that are really important have just grown so tremendously over, over his watch. Uh, you know, I, I, this administration has actually done way better in Latin America than uh, previous administrations. This, is, this president actually has the best relationship with Mexico, the last three presidents. Uh, he has better relationships with Central America, way better relationship with Brazil. Um, so across the board, with the exception of maybe Venezuela and Cuba, Nicaragua, th this president's actually has stronger relations. If you look at Africa, he's actually been much more proactive than the last two presidents. You know, our, even in Europe, where I think the president comes under most criticisms, I mean, the record's relatively positive. NATO's obviously stronger and more cohesive. Um, and even within the countries, I mean, I think in among the Nordic countries, the relationships are solid. The Baltic countries, they're stronger. Central European, stronger. Southern European uh, relations, stronger. I mean, the, the real contentious relationships are, are really with uh, kind of old Europe and, and principally uh, France and Germany. And quite honestly, a lot of those have to do as much with the internal challenges and, and, and problems of, of the Europeans as they do with, with the, the transatlantic community. Um, so I, I think those are pretty significant accomplishments. Okay, and, and, and I think so. I think so too. That you mentioned a lot of things um, that really relate well to the great to the, to the great power competition refocuses. Now, I I want to also get your opinion on what you think have been the administration's maybe greatest setbacks or failures, and where sure. the administration improve if it wins the second terms. Right. Well, clearly, uh, look the. There's an enormous amount of friction about working with allies. There's a lot of, of distrust and animosity, um, principally with the Europeans, also with some others. I think that's always a friction in the relationship that's unhealthy. Um, we should be working together. I mean, China is a great example. Uh, fundamentally, the nations of the free world believe in free enterprise, freely elected governments, and human rights. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't believe in any of those things. They actually see them as obstacles to the, their growth and influence. Uh, if the free world cannot band together and protect those three core values, um, I think we're in real trouble. And so there is friction, uh, and, and I think that has to be overcome. I think public diplomacy is a real challenge. Uh, the, the, pro the president has such a massive megaphone uh, in his global voice, it kind of overshadows everything else. And, and honestly, most of the time, his messaging is really for domestic audience. And so reaching those key audiences uh, is incredibly important. The Chinese are very aggressive on this front um, in, in terms of getting involved in local media, giving them free media, educating their journalists, uh, influencing media outlets. Uh, the Russians, of course, have a, a famously a proactive and aggressive disinformation campaign. Um, we didn't even have a head of the global uh, uh, information agency until until very recently. Um, I think on the economic front, uh, and here's where I, I think uh, people actually get this wrong. I don't think trade deals are the big the big motivator for and the big mover for future ec joint economic growth and public and and and, and partnerships. 
I think a lot of the real growth um, and we're because we're the real center power is in the United States and, and the free market country, is in the private sector. And it's really going to be direct foreign investment, uh, public private partnerships, encouraging uh, foreign investment, encouraging uh, um, investment in the United States, U.S. investing in other countries. And, and we, we've got a whole slew of agencies that, that have little bits and pieces of that from XM to, to Finance Corporation to XM Import Bank to USAID, State Department, Under Secretary for Economy and Energy and 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 uh, and uh, um, economics, and those, those instruments need to be better coordinated and better directed. Um, uh, obviously, you know China is the uh, the trend center or the pace horse for for competition. So the U.S. strategy for dealing with China across the range of of uh, platforms, uh, economic, political, military. This is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, uh, technology, public-private cooperation the, in, in technology space is enormously important. Something. Um, so there's definitely areas where U.S. policy can grow and, and expand, and the, and there are initiatives that the administration really needs to follow up on. So now that we've you know, started the process of normalization in the Middle East, for example, between Israel and the Arab countries, we need to do something with that. We need a framework of common security and, and common economic cooperation to really cement that and be a real engine for stability and growth. Uh, the U.S. has done things in Southern Europe, and Kosovo and Serbia, um, engaging with Romania and other countries. Um, we need to really, um, one of the things the U.S. has invested in is the Three Seas Initiative in, in Central and Southern Europe. We need to really move forward. That's a real important part of Europe that we want to be successful and stable. Um, so there's a lot of unfinished business that this administration can follow up on. Well, Dr. Carafano, I, I want to thank you for that you know, very in-depth answer. I think it makes it a little difficult because there's so many things here that we want to talk about um, that would be fantastic to dive into in, in such a short a period of time. Um, so we'd love to talk to you again sometime, Dr. Carafano, because uh, there's a lot of things here that I, I would normally push back on, um, just but given time constraints, I kind of want to move towards other things. Um, first, you've touched on this a little bit, but um, in terms of kind of the most salient topic in foreign policy right now, we've seen most focus be on U.S.-China competition. Um, and this has been kind of a centerpiece of Trump foreign policy. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how successful Trump foreign policy has been towards China in his administration and, you know, what has come out of greater U.S.-China competition? Yeah, so I, I think there's two important points there. One is, is the, the nature of how the United States has chosen to deal with China. And I think in many ways until this administration, and it's not just about this administration, because I do think that the, the focus on China, the emphasis strategy, it's much more bipartisan than just the Trump administration. But, you know, previously it really was, you know, we had this debate between the panda huggers and the panda haters, whether the rise of China was going to be peaceful and, and, and productive or the rise of China was going to get more dangerous and be more aggressive. And I, I, I think, you know, that debate's, I think, over. I think people are much more concerned about the destabilizing aspects of the rise of China. But, but the forward, the strategy was something more like the movie 
old movie Blazing Saddles. There was a character in there called Mongo. He's a big mean guy. And the line was, don't, don't shoot Mongo. You might make him mad. And that was pretty much our China strategy. It was let's avoid confrontation with China. Let's ignore the friction in the relationship, um, focus on the positive things, try to engage. And I think what this administration has done, and I think done rightly, is kind of flip that on its head because in ignoring negative Chinese behavior, you're actually just enabling them and empowering them to be more aggressive. And so what this administration has said, let's go across the board, military, political, economic, diplomatic, um, legal, technology, and where China is butting up against our interests, let's challenge them and push back so they understand the, the, that they're impinging on our interests, and that'll actually be a quicker way to stability. I, I think, obviously, that's not gonna, that's not something that's going to happen in a New York minute. Uh, I think that strategy is the right strategy. I think it's been generally successful. I think, actually, if you look at Chinese policy today, you could definitely see that they're off their game, that they are, in a sense, trying to respond and adapt to push back from the United States and the, the alliances that the United States has built to push back against that. Um, it's not, it's still a work in progress because China gets a vote and China's got a lot of cards to play, but we've definitely reset the table on the relationship. And I think that's great. Um, the other thing I would say that's really key about the China relationship is, yeah, okay, China may be the pace setter, but again, it's an era of great power competition. And first of all, China is global. So dealing with China is not just about the Indo-Pacific. It's a, you have to deal with Africa, you have to deal with Latin America, you have to deal with Western Europe, you have to deal with the Middle East, because China's everywhere. And the other thing is, is you can't forget Russia and Iran and North Korea. I was like, say a story about like the guy that goes in a doctor, doctor says, well, you got a brain tumor, cancer and a bad heart, you know, which one do you want me to fix? And you're, you go, doc, you know, I'd like you to cure all three because I don't want to die from any of them. So uh, just because China is maybe the rising threat or, or the most present threat that's concerned people, it doesn't mean that we can forget about Russia or Iran or North Korea because they all potentially could be incredibly destabilizing to key areas of U.S. interests. And, 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 and that, the consequences of that could be just as disastrous as a confrontation with China. Well, Dr. Carafano, I, the next thing that I'd like to ask you about is Russia. Just quickly um, – Kind of follow up to China, though, is I, I guess I just from my perspective, I'm not really seeing, you know, I don't get the the analysis that we're deterring China from doing things by stepping up to the game and competing against them. For example, just in the past couple of months, we saw the Indian border crisis, the sinking of Vietnamese boat, fishing boats, um, the continuation of facts on the ground in South China Sea, tensions in the Taiwan Strait, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Well, yeah, we should talk about all of those. I mean, look at the India crisis. I mean, in the old days, the United States would have said, okay, this is between you guys. We're out of here. The U.S. has completely changed and it said we have India's back. And China is much, much more cautious in how it deals with India. And India has been much more proactive, much more aggressive, and much more confident in its dealing with China. Uh, if you look at the South China Seas, the United States has swapped from a position of saying, you know, when things before somebody shoot, you know, sink somebody's fishing boat, the United States would say, okay, well, we don't really have a dog in the fight. Now we basically have declared all of China's elements illegitimate. And again, we've seen Vietnam, we've seen uh, the Philippines, we've seen Indonesia and other countries stand up more to push back because really it's, it's uh, there to carry. I think Taiwan is a, a great example. The more that China's threatened Taiwan, the more the U.S. has reinforced its support uh, and commitments to Taiwan, including sending more senior officials, doing arms deal. I think all of these things really are, are, are 
every step the Chinese have taken, the U.S. has pushed back on that. And, and I think we've seen the consequences of that. Look, you would not have India, Japan, and Australia standing up in the United States against China if they thought that if they, if you know if they didn't think they were picking the winning side. I think that's a good example. You would not have seen the U.K. flip on 5G. You wouldn't see lining up with the United States on 5G. Um, even in, in uh, you know, uh, Africa and Latin America, I mean, Latin America is a good example. Many, many countries now turning the United States and saying, look, we don't want to be a suburb of Beijing. We would much rather do free market economic deals with the United States. Please engage with us. You know, we really are looking for alternatives here. Um, Sri Lanka is another good example. I mean, literally a couple of years ago, Sri Lanka had slipped into the into, into China's pocket. Uh, now, even though that we have a, a, the Rajapaksa back in power, who is very pro-Chinese, he's actually a, adopted a much more neutral policy, much more much more balanced and pro-Indian and much more open to the United States because he doesn't want the Chinese to, to overwhelmingly uh, govern him. The Pakistanis, we've actually seen the Pakistanis come back to the United States and ask the U.S. to be more engaged because, again, they don't want to be under the thumb of the Chinese either. So it's really difficult to argue that that this isn't paying that this isn't paying off because clearly it is. I mean, look, um, the Chinese have completely abandoned their traditional policies of just saying uh, we're just a quiet developing country and we don't really interfere in other people's business. They become much more aggressive in some cases. You hear about this kind of wolf warrior diplomacy, which is based on this these famous Chinese films about a guy that runs around the world battling terrorists who I guess are funded by the United States or whatever. But um, but, but we also see the Chinese, you know, trying to change the subject, like at the, the UN speech where they declared, OK, you know what? Don't worry about the Uyghurs. Um, you know, don't worry about Hong Kong. Uh, don't worry about any of this stuff because we're really all about climate change, which is from the world's largest polluter, uh, you know, comes off. as just a bit a bit disingenuous. So, I mean, you see the Chinese Chinese policy and statecraft stumbling, you know, kind of struggling to kind of re-grasp the initiative, I, I think that's a sign that the U.S. policies are working, not failing. Well, Dr. Carafano, I think this is confirmed to me that, you know, someday I'd, I'd love to have a three-hour conversation to discuss all these nuances. Um, but moving forward, I kind of want to move to Russia, um, like I said. So the Trump administration, since it entered office, has received enormous criticism um, from you know, across the political spectrum regarding his foreign policy towards Russia, um, specifically in regards to, you know, not taking the topic of election interference seriously or, you know, not condemning the government of Russia for allegedly poisoning Alexei Navalny, et cetera, or, you know, bounties on U.S. troops in Afghanistan. So do you think criticism of the Trump administration on Russian, on U.S.-Russia relations is warranted? Well, first of all, I would argue that it's a, across the spectrum. I don't think it's across the spectrum. I actually think it's it's mostly Trump trumpeted by his critics and adversaries. And I think in, in many cases, conservatives and Trump supporters, when they hear this now, they just say, well, that's just partisan rhetoric. And it's and they don't even give it any consequence. They just brush it off. Because the reality is, is what people have seen in four years that this administration has been incredibly tough on Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, and the interesting thing is, is, is you, know, you know, I think we have to be concerned about both of them, but you know, China has a lot of cards to play, uh, and in many ways, the future U.S. policy, whether it's a Trump administration or Biden administration, in part, the U.S. is going to have to respond to how China chooses to lay those cards down. You know, Russia, Russia has very few cards to play. Its economy is still incredibly weak. It doesn't have a lot of options. I think if you've seen the the latest 
in Belarus, I mean, the Russians went at this very gingerly, very under the radar, because they really don't want to have a confrontation over Belarus, um, which is something that should just naturally be in their sphere of influence. So I, I think the administration's actually done a good job on Russia. Um, I, I think it's remarkable, for example, that Nord Stream 2, which I think most European countries, this is a second natural gas pipeline under Germany, which a lot of European countries oppose because it would literally undercut all their other efforts to um, establish alternate energy sources and, and energy resilience. And it, it really could really create a situation where Russia could divide the West by sending nat natural gas into Germany and Western Europe and then cut off Central Europe and really divide the two parts of Europe. Um, a lot of people opposed it. The Germans have been very reluctant to walk away from the deal. The president has just hammered him on this for four years and been incredibly tough on it to the point of is, is he's willing to, to jeopardize and he's willing to, you know, have enormous friction in the U.S.-German relationship because he sees this Russian move as such a threat. Um, so I, I don't I don't see this administration being weak on Russia, uh, and I actually think that you know compared to where we were four or five years ago with with Putin, uh, we're in a much stronger place than he is. Uh, Dr. Carafato, I wanted to ask you a little bit about NATO, and so NATO has been another hot button issue during Trump's presidency, and most recently the administration decided to withdraw I think nearly twelve thousand U.S. troops from Germany, and so I'm wondering what motivated. Uh, Trump's decision to do this, uh, if you think it's a correct one. But then also, I'm wondering, since Trump has criticized the presence of U.S. troops throughout the world, if elected a second term, should we expect U.S. troops to also leave bases um, in areas such as South Korea, Japan, the Philippines? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say U.S. support for NATO, I think, is rock solid. I think the president's actually incredibly proud of what he's accomplished with NATO over the last four years. And if you look at the additional investments uh, that countries have made in NATO, I, I think he's right to say that. I think NATO has re refocused uh, on territorial defense. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on reinforcing NATO. You know, we started this very serious, uh, famous series of exercises started this year, although it was kind of cut off because of COVID, about reinforcing uh, elements of NATO. Um, NATO's way better off than it was four years ago, and I think U.S. commitments to NATO are rock solid. Um, the, you know, I, I'm, I'm really glad you, you raised the issue about the forces in Germany, because uh, I really don't think people have unpacked that correctly. First of all, there's, there's two components to that. One is the Air Force component. The Air Force component makes complete and utter sense. I mean, essentially what they had is they had a single wing airbase, which was incredibly inefficient and expensive with, with a, a wing that, that wasn't even really doing very much there. And by moving part of those resources to Southern Europe, where they're actually much more needed and much more important, uh, and moving the other stuff to the UK, where it's much, much more cost effective, the, the Air Force moves are completely unobjectionable. And, and, and people just ignore, and that's half the force structure, and people just ignore that like and just don't even mention it. And, and it's just it's just good governance, good common sense, actually good strategy and good and actually even then even NATO supports that move. The the other half of that is is the, the cavalry unit in Germany. And and the decision was, well, we really need more forces forward in places like Poland, but we really don't have the infrastructure yet to support forces there, and we really don't have the ways to really defend them. And, and we really don't have enough forces in Europe to go around. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that unit and we're going to bring it back to the United States and we're going to rotate forces forward. 
Now, that's actually something that administrations have talked about doing for years. It's actually something that Democratic administrations always want to do. It's something that a Biden administration would do without even blinking an eye. Now, I personally, I don't like that idea. Uh, if it were me, I would rather keep those forces in Germany and rotate them force, ro- rotate them forward to um, Poland and, and other countries. I think it'd actually be more cost-effective and more sustainable. But but that's really a um, you know a, a numbers and a, and a strategy debate that, that's actually been going on in this town for twenty years about people who think that the, the better way is to rotate forces forward, and then people like me who think no, it's better to have them prepositioned in Europe. Um, I, I don't think it really signals anything strategic in terms of NATO at all. I think it's really mostly about housekeeping. And Dr. Carafano, the last thing I want to ask ask you in terms of regional focus before we move on to our last question for you is related to the Middle East. And I I see that one of the Trump's uh, Trump administration's greatest success has been in this new negotiations with between Israel and the Gulf states. However, I I also can't overlook that. To me, it seems that the Middle East has become more unstable since the United States, since the Trump administration has come to power. Turkey invaded Syria, northern Syria. There were reports that the U.S. was considering leaving its Baghdad embassy. There's also there also seems to be a regional conflict brewing over Armenia and Azerbaijan, where you're seeing Russia, Iran, Turkey, and other actors coming to the region as well. So I wanted to see. I wanted to first of all. I allow you to elaborate a little bit more on your assertion that. Well, it's not. Well, first of all, it's not an assertion. I mean, I'm just, you know, the one thing about peace and stability in a region doesn't mean that it's the land of milk and honey and there are no problems and no conflicts. I think one of the rules of statecraft is be careful to solve all the problems, because it is true for every problem you solve, you create another one. So the, the real art of strategy is the balance of dealing with the problems that are really problems and. Uh, and, and figuring out how to mitigate the ones that are not. And so let's just walk through some of those. I mean, Azerbaijan and Armenia is a relatively contained, contained struggle. It's not likely to, to grow into the broader Middle East. The two main actors there really are Turkey and Russia. Turkey and Russia have no interest in getting into a war with each other. So that, it's only been a problem for 40 years. It'll probably still be a problem. Um, Syria, I completely disagree with you. I think Syria is way more stable than we could possibly have hoped for. I mean, we really thought that Syria was going to destabilize the entire region, that we were going to pour millions of refugees into Western Europe, that it was going to destabilize Jordan, it was going to bleed over in Iraq. Um, and what we've actually seen is, is, is the situation is incredibly more stable. We're not seeing masses of refugees. Uh, the regime is completely hamstrung. The Russians have gone nowhere. They're, they're pretty much where they started. And for that, they've spent not a lot. They spent tons of money and really accomplished very little much in, other than holding on Damascus. The Iranians have actually been embarrassed in Syria. Um, the, the, the Turks have actually been relatively restrained. They have not done much other than move into the area, which, to, which they thought was legitimate to safeguard their interests. The Kurds are still fine. Uh, the U.S. Has, has been smart in terms of the force structure that it's kept there. It's I mean, in kind of helping the Kurds on the oil fields. It's really kept the United States as a player. So, look, Syria is not a solvable problem in the short term. And I think uh, the, the, where we are in Syria today is, quite honestly, way better than the world could have hoped for. Um, and, and then let's remember, Syria has never been a vital interest in the United States. I mean, the Saudis have been the enemies of America forever. We don't care. It's, it's, Syria is not a big problem for us. Syria's only problem for us is if it, if it, if it looks to destabilize the larger region. That's not happening. Uh, we're not seeing it for certain. 
Um, I think Iraq's actually been more stable than it's been in quite a while. Um, interesting to see what's going on with the threat about the embassy. Don't know if that's just you know kind of playing chicken or or with the Iraqis. We'll see. But the U.S. is definitely definitely pressuring the Iraqis to uh, to get the Iranian threat under control. And to be honest with you. Um, I think four years ago, I would worry that Iraq would just fall into the arms of Iran. Today, I am not worried at all that's, that's going to happen. Um, I, you know, if Iraq was just a neutral player, I, I would be. I, I actually think Iraq is just kind of a, a, a force for relatively stability in the region. So, yeah, I completely disagree with you. I, I, I don't see a place in the region where the U.S. is losing ground. All right. So, and and so it ultimately comes down to. To, it's more stable in the in the areas that we care about strategically. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. Gotcha. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that for, for our listeners as well, because yeah. um, again, as no, Zach no, said, this is, we, like could, I said, it's, yeah. if if your goal is to be the world's policeman and have and that the the definition of success is nobody's dying, there are no refugee camps, you know, there are no bad people in the world. I mean, you're always going to be disappointed. The 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 American power is always about interests and values and, and putting those in balance, right? We always want to maximize our, our values in terms of doing good when we do policy. And we do policy in our own interests. But, you know, we have to take care of people at home. We have to be responsible for their interests abroad. So it's always that prudence in using power and using it constructively that you seek to do. And, and you know, it, maximalist goals hardly ever work. You know, so the notion of walking away from everything and everything will be fine, that, that's wildly impractical. The, the notion of using American power to solve all the world's problems, you know, as if the world wanted us to solve all their problems, that's not, that's not very practical either. The reality is America is going to be someplace, uh, and, and a successful presidency is if you, if you wake up at the end of your presidency and And there, there are more people sleeping safely in their beds than when you started, then you're a successful president. Dr. Carafano, I wanted to take us to the bigger picture and ask you, um, in what ways would foreign policy under President Trump in a possible second term differ from the foreign policy under a possible Biden administration? And if you could also talk about what might be some continuities as well. Sure. Well, you know, I would say I think a second Trump term would be the second half of Trump's first term. There's a lot of unfinished business. I, I think the administration would want to move forward with better collective security in the Middle East. I think they'd want to continue to um, strengthen NATO. Um, they're going to continue to challenge China. Uh, and I, I think they would like to close out with a deal with uh, North Korea. So I think those will all be uh, priorities. And, and I, I think they would like to significantly compete with China better in Africa and Latin America. So I, I, those are all things I would look to. Um, I actually, th I'm actually in the camp that thinks, and, and, you know, I'm not alone in this. Many of my, you know, liberal progressive friends uh, who are the experts, you know, agree with me. Um, there's an awful lot of continuity there. Um, look, you know, the Iran deals may be the most contentious thing. And it's not that Republicans and Democrats and liberals or conservatives are all sanguine about Iran. We all think Iran's a problem. Um, you know, but the reality is, is the Iran deals is as good as dead and it will be dead when, regardless of who the next president is. And the next president's going to have to deal with the reality of that. Um, so I'm not sure that, that and, and, and I think the you know, Biden people are pretty smart. They know that the, the world has changed significantly in four years. And you can't just say, well, we're going to go back to the policies of four years ago. So my guess is European policy would look the same. Um, 
you know, uh, I think they would be foolish not to build on the success in the Middle East. They'd be foolish not to build on the success of competing with China. They'd be foolish not to build on the, the relationships in the Indo-Pacific. Um, they need to figure out ways to do better in Latin America and Africa. Um, so, I, you know, I, I would expect a lot of continuity. I think the most obvious ones are um, uh, a couple, obviously climate change, but the, where there'd be a lot more emphasis on climate change. But the problem with climate change is it's easy to have a change in tone. It's hard to get the physics and economics to work out. The, the problem with really maximalist views on climate change is, is you, you need different physics, right? If, if all these alternative technologies were so ready and robust, and if they all created way more jobs in fossil fuels, then you know what? The private sector would have embraced them a long time ago. So the, the transition to a carbon-free future is, is not as simple as it sounds. And, and the problem with the, 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 the drumbeat of let's just all agree to transition to a carbon-free future is you're cutting off the conversations on all the other ways to mitigate the effects of climate change. So I, I, I just don't think that's kind of going anywhere. Um, the other one is international organizations. The, this, well, first of all, it's not actually not true that this administration is disengaged from international organizations, but, but they will come in with the mantra, well, we need to be there, we need to participate. The problem with international organizations is, is in the 1990s, post-Cold War era, they really were maybe a place where we all worked together to try to forge international norms. What, mostly what drives competition in international organizations today is China to a great degree and, and other states, including Russia to a lesser degree, really trying to manipulate these organizations for advantages and great power competition. International organizations are a battleground. They're not a place where neutral countries come together to create norms. And you have to compete and realize that. And, uh, and, and, and competing doesn't mean we're just going to join and be a member of the club and everything will be fine. They will, they will find that that won't work. Dr. Carafano, I wanted to ask you a final question, and that's looking into the long term, what would you say would be the effects of, on foreign policy of a second Trump term? And what are the long term effects of a potential Biden administration? Well, I think, look, I think in the end, whoever our next president is, they will find themselves uh, in an era of great power competition, that that is the reality of the world we're in. And they were going to have to craft strategies to deal with that. Uh, and so I, I think that people will look back at probably this four years and the next four years in the ways maybe we look back at the, you know, the early, late 1940s, early 50s as the time when America figured out what its place was in the world and adapted kind of consistent, productive, efficacious ways to deal with that. I expect that'll happen. Well, Dr. Carafano, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. As a reminder, all of the opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and the guests and not of Johns Hopkins University. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.